Greetings all and welcome to the Everyday Hope Podcast. Thanks for joining me again. Big shout out to all of our friends north of the border, hey? Greetings, Canada. By the way, did anybody notice that September is just about over? You know, I'm, I'm usually not that excited about the roller coaster of life racing toward the close of yet another year. But boy, I am not going to be sad to put 2020 in the rear view. Let's be honest, 2020 is like the Geely of years. But look, we're talking about Revelation, right? And this book is so much about understanding victory during tough times. It's about knowing the truth that when things look bleak, God is still in control and still wins in the end. We have that future victory in the bank right now. So yeah, 2020 can't defeat us no matter how much it stinks. Now, our introduction to Revelation so far has covered the messages to the seven churches, which were designed to encourage us and admonish us and lead us in the way in which we should go. You may have heard other preachers talk about these messages as the seven stages of the church throughout history. You may have heard some preachers talk about them being to specific churches only and having no relevance to us or to the rest of the book. But I believe, and the text bears it out, that these seven messages are to the whole church, everywhere, at all times. And if we spend too much time trying to fit them into a dispensational box, we might miss what God is calling us to do and be. So let's review them one more time. In these messages, Jesus calls his church first to love, because sound doctrine without love is not sufficient. To endure, with the promise that God will walk with us and give us eternal life. To obey, because sound doctrine still matters. To submit, because how we act matters. Right and wrong still matter to God. To follow, because lip service faith is dead faith. Faith is about how we live. To trust, because God has opened a door for you that no one can close. And to believe, because religion without faith in Jesus is useless. Being church means being the assembly of God's people, and Jesus has shown us in these messages how we ought to practice that. But the revelation of John does not end in chapter 3. It goes on. The revelation goes on, and the message to the church goes on. Remember that there isn't some invisible the end after chapter 3. The whole book is a letter to the churches. So think about what we've discussed about the seven messages to the church. Based on that, what would you say revelation was about? Now, I hope most of you would say how the church ought to look or God's promises to his church. So far, John's vision has been a fairly practical one in which Jesus has taught us what it means to be his church and how we ought to conduct ourselves in a world that often disapproves of us. I had a pastor once who used to talk about a lean versus a luxurious interpretation of scripture. His point was that the soundest interpretation of scripture allowed the text to speak without bringing a bunch of outside stuff into it. In theological circles, they call this eisegesis, reading meaning into the text. What we want to do is exegesis, reading meaning out of the text, letting it speak to us instead of telling it what it ought to mean. For example, interpreting the seven messages as seven stages in the history of the church requires us to bring too much into the text that isn't already there. And we should always be cautious about reading stuff into the text instead of extracting meaning from it. A dangerous side effect of this for us here in Revelation is that having already brought so much baggage to the first three chapters, it's easy to apply some well-known chronology to this section 
and to see chapter 4 as a completely future event. Since the church appears in heaven in the future in chapter 4, and the seven churches represent the past stages of the church in history, some people insist that the rapture actually occurred in the white space between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And you can see how they got there once they've missed the messages of chapters 2 and 3. As we come to chapter 4 and the scene of worship in heaven, we understand the seven messages as a word from our Lord to the church in every age about what it means to be the church. With this context in mind, and in light of that practical interpretation, it seems silly to even argue whether or not the rapture occurred in chapter 3. It makes far more sense to continue to understand the big picture and to hear the point of the revelation as a whole as if the entire message is directed to our present. Jesus continually said, let anyone with an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So let's take a a look at some of the key parts of chapter 4 and see what Jesus is continuing to say to anyone with an ear bent toward him. And I want to start by just reading chapter 4. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the thrones came flashes of lightning and rumble of thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. Now, chapter 4 contains a lot of intense imagery, and that imagery inspires a lot of debate. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about some of those issues that will help us understand this passage. Some people like to argue about every little issue, like the door standing open and John being in the Spirit, and the phrase, what must take place after this. We're not going to focus so much on the ink that we forget to let the image of worship in heaven wash over us. But I do want to talk about three important images from chapter 4. The description of the one seated on the throne, the issue of the 24 elders, and the issue of the four living creatures. Now, I don't think John embedded a secret message in the description of God seated on the throne. It's not an image that should be debated, but experienced. The more time we spend finding a specific meaning for each of the gems and colors and elements, 
the less time we spend marveling at the awe and beauty of John's vision of the Ancient of Days. We ought to see this vision with John and marvel at the beauty of God. I mean, try to put yourself in John's shoes. How do you describe what you're seeing? God is so beautiful and so brilliant, and John uses the only language beautiful enough to even begin to give folks an idea of what it was like. There's also a lot of debate over the identity of the 24 elders. Some scholars think they represent the saints in general, and others think they represent both the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples, collectively symbolizing both the Old and New Testaments, the Old and New Covenants. There are others who take the imagery to an inhuman level, insisting that this is merely an angelic council with no human significance. Others use this as proof that the church has been raptured, since the 24 elders symbolize the raptured church. I believe that the elders represent the saints in general. The number 24 does represent both the Old and New Testaments, but that image represents the church for all time. What's in view is the idea that all of God's people, for all time, are given a place around the throne where they can openly and freely worship and adore their God in his very presence. The four living creatures are another hotly debated image. They may represent creation collectively, implying that all of God's creation gathers around his throne and worships him. Or they might symbolically represent the Numbers 2 situation of the people of God gathered around the tabernacle in four camps, to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Some Talmudic teaching supports the idea and ascribe symbols to the banners of the four camps that represent these four creatures. In either case, what you see is all represented quite nicely. Combined with the angels and the 24 elders, the image is stunning. This is the picture of everything and all things doing the only thing that can be done when the Ancient of Days is in the hizzy. Fall on your face and worship him. Even the rocks will cry out. I can only imagine when that day comes and I find myself standing in the sun if I will stand in his presence or fall to my knees. I don't know, but either way, it will be in complete and utter worship. All God's people are and will be gathered around the throne, having survived and conquered and inherited their promise, the promise we possess right now. The future we wait for is our present possession. We own it and no one can take it away. But we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Now, there's so much to hear in this chapter. There's so much to wonder at by simply closing your eyes and listening to the images of worship in heaven. And I encourage all of you, whenever you're feeling down about life, to open chapter 4 and read it. Or ask a friend to read it to you as you envision yourself in that worship. For now, I want to focus on three major issues plaguing the church that are answered in this scene of worship in heaven. Those issues deal with the survival of the church, the future promises of Christ, and the very issue of worship. So the first issue has to do with the inability of the church to stand against the powers of this world. The church in the first three centuries was under attack. Make no mistake, arguably the most powerful empire that ever existed bent its will toward the destruction of Christianity. If you ever have some free time, go to the library and read up on the Roman emperors and their attitude towards Christians and Christianity. Nero was emperor in the mid-first century and was probably responsible for the deaths of both Peter and Paul. Nero was a sadist, and the Christians were easy targets because everybody hated them. People believed they were atheists because they would not worship the emperor. They believed Christians were sexual deviants because they allowed women into their secret ceremonies. And they believed Christians were cannibals because there were rumors they ate flesh and blood during their worship. Communion. And Nero used these rumors and fears to his advantage 
in his persecution and torture of Christians. Domitian was a bit more intentional. Toward the end of the first century, he instigated government-sanctioned violence towards Christians in an effort to stamp out the movement. Revelation was probably written during his reign. A Trajan's persecution was more casual. Moving into the second century, he favored punishing and persecuting troublemakers, but advocated mercy toward all who participated in the cult of Rome and worshipped their gods. But then Marcus Aurelius, who reigned during the heart of the second century, made it illegal to practice Christianity. He was a Stoic and believed it was dangerous to the state to teach the immorality of the soul. So he added to Trajan's edicts against the exclusive practice of Jesus worship. In spite of all this, the church did not die, but began to grow. So Septimus Severus, who reigned into the early third century, kicked it up a notch, making the public burnings and other executions of Christians a daily occurrence. Valerian, emperor in the mid-third century, targeted church elders by forcing priests to sacrifice to the gods and exiling or killing any priest who would not. By the end of the third century and the beginning of the fourth, Diocletian made the persecution of Christians a full-time job, burning churches and documents and confiscating property. And Galerius continued these policies until his health began to fail around 311 AD. We're talking about nearly 300 years of intense and deliberate persecution designed to stamp out this little irritating sect of cannibals, atheists, and sexual deviants called Christianity. So how do you think these poor little churches felt about their chances of survival? How do you think they felt about their futures and the future of the church? Jesus had not returned. Where was he? Was he ever coming back? Was there any hope for them at all? Robert Mounts wrote a great commentary on Revelation in which he writes, on the plane of history, the church appears unable to resist the might of hostile worldly powers. Now, this makes a lot of sense. We've seen time and time again that the church is powerless to defend itself against those who seek to destroy it. Yet, Mounts doesn't stop there. He finishes his quote this way. But the course of history is not determined by political power, but by God. Time and time again, God has shown that he alone is able to prevent the church's destruction, even when it seems imminent. So, when the poor struggling church is invited into the very throne room of heaven, their perspective has to change. But isn't that true for all of us? Once we get a heavenly perspective, our entire view of human history is altered. We begin to see through God's eyes and not our own. And even in the worst circumstances, we begin to see that the hope in every hopeless situation is the living Christ himself. I believe that chapter 4 represents the single most central theme in all of Revelation. Let me quote another guy with a, a huge brain and a heart for Jesus, G.K. Beale. The pastoral purpose of Revelation is to assure suffering Christians that God and Jesus are sovereign and that the events that Christians are facing are part of a sovereign plan that will culminate in their redemption and the vindication of their faith. Remember that this prophetic vision is a letter to the churches. The whole thing, chapters 1 through 22. All of Revelation is a message of victory. When Jesus tells the churches to hold on and to bear up under persecution, he says this having already shown the people that he has won the war. Their hope in him during the tough times exists primarily because they know from this vision that God rules and that everything that happens he uses to bring his will to fulfillment. Right now, no matter what is going on in your life, the host of heaven is around the throne worshiping the Holy One who has assured us of our place in this heavenly throng. What a message of hope to anyone wondering about their future. The second issue is the future promises of Christ 
being a present possession of the church. You see, the reason this message of victory provides real hope and not just cheerleading is because everything in this book is designed to show us that the future is now. What Jesus has promised, he has already accomplished. And although that accomplishing exists in our temporal future, Jesus Christ has made it a real thing right now. Now, have you ever seen a movie where one guy says to another guy, you're a dead man. I'm thinking of movies like Roadhouse or Trading Places or The Green Hornet. Heck, even Animal House did it. It's such a common thing we might not realize that it's actually a literary device called a prolepsis. A prolepsis is where someone says something about a future condition, but says it in the present tense, right? When Louis Winthorpe III grabs Billy Ray Valentine by the neck and says, You're a dead man, Valentine! He's not actually dead yet. The villain is using a prolepsis. He's stating the future event he plans to make happen as a present reality. It's so certain, I'm going to say it like it already happened, right? That's a prolepsis. Jesus Christ is the ultimate prolepsis. The main point of Revelation, and especially of chapter 4, is to assure all believers that what God intends to accomplish in the culmination of history was stamped into the concrete when Jesus walked out of the tomb. What God intends to fulfill in human history, although a future event from our point of view, is fully accomplished in him. So we, the church, possess it even now. It's not something we may or may not get in the future. It's our true possession right now. G.K. Beale wrote, Christ's kingship is not merely a future reality, but something that began at the resurrection. Consequently, Christ's redemption of his people is not something he has yet to accomplish. It's a reality for his people even now. Christians are assured that as they suffer under their current persecution, they are already participating in Christ's eschatological kingdom. Christians now can persevere knowing that they possess a share of that kingdom right now. Christians in the first three centuries suffered under the persecution of the Roman Empire. Today we suffer from the persecution of cancer, a failing economy, the indifference of the faith community, and the stubborn ridicule of the world, and this dang COVID-19. But the message is the same. No matter what you face right now, you own this scene of worship in heaven. The third issue is the worship pictured in heaven itself. We might ask, why is worship in heaven seen as the ultimate vision of the reality of Christ's promises? Okay, that's a good question. Look, we talked about the prolepsis in this book. The scene reminds the church of the future promise that is its present possession. The ultimate promise is that the church will be in a perfect place around the throne of God himself, worshiping him in all his splendor. But the truth of this vision is simple. Once anything is situated in proximity to the Almighty, only one choice remains. Worship. All life. All creation. Everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth must fall to their knees and on their faces and worship the Holy One who is seated on the throne. It's a magnificent picture that expresses the one true and ultimate meaning of life, to worship a holy and almighty God who is worthy to be worshipped, who loves us and rescues us to be with him and to worship him. So here we stand in complete agreement and solidarity with all of our Christian brothers and sisters who have come before us and may come after us. Here we stand with this image before our eyes, understanding what the ultimate purpose of life is. The ultimate reality of the universe is, and the ultimate goal toward which we run is, worship of the Ancient of Days in His very presence. Do you have a health issue that's beating you down? Do you have job issues or money issues that are threatening you? Are you uncertain about the future? 
Revelation stands for all time as the final word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your present condition will always contain the future reality of worship in heaven. The scene for us is not just a promise, it's a promise that Jesus has already made a reality. His life, death, resurrection, and ascension have made this scene a reality for us. It's not merely our future, it is our present possession. We own the promise. The best analogy I can make is the reality of a man who has just this second jumped off a 2,000 foot cliff with no parachute, no net, no water below him. Has he splatted? No. Is he gonna? Yes. Are you certain? Yes. There is no condition or series of circumstances in which gravity, who is a harsh mistress, will not have an impact on this man's life, so to speak. His future condition is a present reality. The only thing left is the fall. The same is true for all who, in the words of Revelation, for all who conquer. Our future condition is a present reality. The only thing left is life. And there is no condition or series of circumstances in which Jesus Christ, who is our living Savior, will not have an impact on our lives. Read Revelation 4 often. Join the worship in heaven and live each day knowing that this promise belongs to you. All right. I'm going to pray for you right now. And as always, I want you to be safe. God can hear you with your eyes open. So keep your eyes on what you're doing and let your hearts pray with me now. Father, we thank you so much for the promises you make and that you make real for us. Life is so uncertain right now. We're in a bit of turmoil. This world seems to be going crazy. But when we hear your words and see the worship going on in heaven, we are encouraged to know you have made this real for us. Lord, walk us through each day and protect us and guide us and lead us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'll see you next time when we talk about the scroll and the lamb in chapter 5. Peace.